before you on your table, you have uh, communion elements. Um, we're going to do a very brief meditation type thing now and a little more extended later because I want to nail you with something in my teaching, <laughs> which will set you up for uh, some more uh, stuff to come. So you have before you a bread and cup, a rendition of that. This is almond cracker for those of you who are going gluten-free. If you have a nut allergy, sorry about that, but uh, we've got the gluten-free people covered. And uh, you also have a cup. When this first started, uh, which we will be celebrating on Monday, Thursday, which is the Thursday night before Easter, uh, we have traditionally, we have a communion service here where we'll go through this in a little deeper level. We invite you to that. Uh, in fact, if any of you uh, have been thinking about baptism, which is this act of commitment, um, if you're thinking about that and would like to pursue that, let me know. Uh, that's when we usually do it around here. Um, let me know about that if you have any more information or see me right after a service up here. Um, but anyway, on that first Passover uh, meal together with Jesus and the disciples, he co-opted some of the elements from the Passover meal and took up the bread and the cup, took up the bread and said, every time you do this, bread and the cup, remember me. Remember me. Now why in the world would Jesus make it that simple? Speaking to his disciples, just remember me. Well, the answer is as obvious as can be. It's because these are his disciples. And they're supposed to be following in the footsteps of the one who is their leader. The disciples need to remember everything they've seen and heard and learned from the one they've been following. So it seems silly, but of course Jesus is going to say this. Remember me. Remember who I was. Remember what I taught. Remember how I lived my life? Remember what I did with my life? Because you're following me. And if you don't remember me, you're not going to follow me very well. And so it started off just as the simple, wonderful thing. And then something terrible turned that night. And he was arrested. He was unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly tortured, unjustly killed on that Friday before December and many people immediately and since have then looked at this bread and this cup as a broken body, a body broken for you, literally, quite literally, through torture and crucifixion. Looked at this, the blood of the grape as literal blood of Jesus, somehow making a final sacrifice for all sin forevermore, somehow. That thing which started off as this good remember me thing became a very bad horrible thing, representing death and torture, injustice. And then Easter happened. And then the lens shifted yet again to where somehow it became a morph of both things. Really bad, really ugly, devastating, horrific, and really good, remembering the man, his ethic, his teaching, his miracles, the whole thing. And I want to submit to you this morning, wherever you are in your walk in faith, you're welcome to these elements, and you take it for however is meaningful to you. But, but I, want to, I want to encourage you to think today as when we eat this, it is a representation of the capacity of shalom itself to be able to somehow bring together horror and beauty to be able to transform something that was terrible into something that is wonderful. Because I believe God has always been about that.
from Genesis to Revelation, from the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos of water and bringing something beautiful to bear to the very end of the Bible and the last chapter of Revelation, somehow God bringing things back together to beauty. This is the story of Shalom. And this can be the story of our lives. So take the bread. Remember the man, Jesus, had flesh and blood just like me and you. Remember the man who got tortured and killed, a horrible injustice. But remember that this remembers a synthesis of both bringing together beauty and awful into something wonderful. Take and eat. And take the blood of the grape, which also reminds it the blood of the man. And remember that this represents our capacity in shalom, ugliness and beauty coming together to something wonderful. Take and drink. We're going to be building on that theme uh, quite a bit. Before I jump into the text and uh, take you somewhere, maybe, I want to bring up a couple things to your attention. First of all, thank you to Angie last week for, she wasn't, oh yeah, right, right. Very good. Oh, wait. I just blew it. I meant to say very good or she did great, but she instructed us to just say that she was pretty good. So pretty good job last week, (laughs) Angie. It was great. I'm so glad you're here uh, to offer your gifts and your strengths and all that. This is great. Um, Next thing is just a very quick thing. Uh, We have a crosswalker uh, that is looking for space, um, needing to move into either an ADU or apartment or something like that. Um, It's a crosswalker and daughter, and so if you've got space or know somebody who has that kind of space, please let me know uh, so I can hook that up. Uh, Next thing is we have a new witness wall in front of us. So uh, March starts Women's History Month. I haven't put together the, the list that tells you who all these people are. Some of them, I think you know who they are, uh, so you can celebrate them already. But this is something we're trying to do in the months that have kind of a, uh, a focus on this. We want to celebrate um, women this month for their achievements. So anyway, you can check that out, and I'll have the, the cheat sheet ahead uh, for you to, to scan uh, by next week. Finally, um, just want to invite you, if any of you would like to be a part of the planning team for Napa's Pride Month. Uh, Pride Month is held in June, and uh, they are bringing together different people from the community. Crosswalk is a sponsor uh, of this event because of who we are in the community. And uh, so I'm invited to the table. By extension, I want to invite some of you, if you'd like to be a part of that and celebrating this uh, aspect of our neighbors uh, here in town, who we are. So anyway, let me know again uh, if you're interested in that, and I will hook you up. I think the first meeting is like in 10 days or something, so we got time uh, to get you fixed up for that. Okay, so I asked you what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, Let's see how well you did. So this is kind of a modern adaptation of it, but this is them. Here's the top ten. Starts off with, I'm the only guy, Um, and then I I co-opted the language, worship appropriately. Now, the reason I didn't say worship is because... actually means worth-ship or worthiness, how we choose to show our worth. And so, really, in terms of here's what I want to say. Who's number one? Who's your true north? What is your true north in your life? And my guess is that you can probably figure out what someone's true north is, what is most important in their life, by looking at a couple things. Their calendar, 
and their pocketbook. Calendar because it tells you where your time goes, where your attention goes, and, and your pocketbook because it tells you where your money goes. And I got good news and bad news. This is, uh, if calendar pocketbook both say God is absolutely number one in your life, then you got number one nailed. However, <laughs> if God is sort of a secondary thought, if spirituality is just sort of a, an add-on to your life, uh, then maybe there's something to examine here. And so the question really behind it is, what really is guiding your life? And then it gets to uh, don't worship man-made uh, things as if they were gods. Uh, so certainly, I know in our Western uh, capitalistic, consumeristic society, we don't have any problem with this whatsoever, uh, but maybe you do. Uh, next one coming from God, treat me and my name reverently. Uh, don't use my name flippantly. Don't use me flippantly. Um, this is a challenge for us. You know, I grew up in a very uh, conservative home. I didn't really know it was conservative. It was just home to me. And that thing in particular uh, was really important. So I never, ever, ever heard anybody in my family say, oh my God, ever. Because that was instructed to us, like that is taking the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> so uh, when I would have my Catholic friends that I'd hang around with, they're saying, oh my God, left and right. You know, if the tater tots at lunch are cold, oh my God. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to live in this land of heathens? <laughs> it was kind of crazy. So anyway, uh, it's not really about just oh as much as it's about you know, what are you doing with this thing and how are you speaking of it and treating uh, the holy and that gets us to uh, this fourth thing, and then things kind of shift. Keep the Sabbath holy. And boy, do we need this in our, our ultra-driven society. Uh, one day for a God reset is kind of how I'm saying it. And worship can be a part of that, getting out in the nature. The whole point of it is to stop doing your normal stuff. Get out of your routine, your routine so you can recreate, you can recoup, and stay whole and human. And if you live in the United States, you have a hard time with this because every voice in our culture is saying, go, 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 go. And if you're not, you're a loser and you're probably going to fall off the trucks. Success, success, drive, drive, drive is the message of our culture. Ironically, even as we are saying, meditate, meditate, meditate. meditate. So do that. And I'm glad you're here because that's a part of it. Uh, then we get into some real ethical stuff that seems pretty obvious. This, these are good things out of your father. Murder. You must not commit adultery because if you commit adultery, you'll probably get murdered <laughs> by somebody. Uh, you must not steal. Uh, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. Did anybody have a hard time getting that one uh, before you Googled it? All right, false testimony thing. And the final one on the list, which is uh, very provocative, is you must not covet. Everybody get all 10? Anybody have any? Did anybody get 100%? Okay, I love your honesty. All right, so we got eight or so. Uh, that last one's interesting because nobody can, nobody can tell if you're coveting or not necessarily. So it's, it's, it's on you, on your own heart, your own And that interior world is a lot of where we're going. Well, in our Western culture, we miss the point that this top ten list, so to speak, was meant to be a covenantal uh, document, a covenantal way of thinking of God and people. Like the people of God are going to honor these things, and of course they're deeper than just the, the face value of things. You could, you could write volumes on each one of these things and what they meant, uh, but it was meant to define a relationship. This is how it's going to look if we're the people of God. 
But in our Western culture, going all the way back to Greek thought, uh, we very easily shifted this into transactional thinking. That if I do these 10 things, God is going to do all these things for me. So I'm going to make sure I'm a good boy and I'm, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to murder, I'm going to honor my parents, I'm not going to commit adultery, not steal, uh, no false testimony, I'm not going to covet my neighbor's stuff. And then God, that's the way the deal works. You've got to do your part. And sometimes we read the entirety of the Old Testament this way. I will be your God, you will be my people. You do the things you're supposed to do, I'll do the things I said I would do. Somehow we even twisted that transactional thinking to Christianity itself. And some of you are raised in traditions that talked about the good grace of God and the freedom that God offers and grace and all that. And you were told, if and only if you say yes to Jesus and accept Jesus into your heart, which is really not anywhere in the Bible, but it sounds nice, uh, then God will forgive you and then welcome you into heaven. Now, that's a broad stroke, but that is simply a new form of transaction because if God is giving grace, and grace is something that you cannot earn, it's freely given, then there is no transaction. Your experience of grace, acceptance, may be to open yourself to it, but you are all, and I hear this, you're already loved and forgiven by God. There's nothing you can do to screw that up. That is like gravity, that's like oxygen, it's there. What you do with it, well, that's up to you. But God's already done this. And so rather than looking at this as a transaction, like we're going to do this, then God will do that, think about this as, in two ways. One, they're guardrails, really obvious things. Stay within the guardrails. Uh, don't blow these things because they're whoppers, and they're going to they're have a cascading domino effect on many other things. So mind the guardrails. But then also, it's really meant to be a guide towards shalom. That if we stay within the guardrails, we're more likely to experience the shalom, the deep peace of God. And if we follow this true north and look at this as emblematic of everything God wants to do, then we're more likely to experience all the things of shalom in our life. We run into a passage of Scripture this week with a lot of other churches all over the world, and John puts this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. This is <laughs> This is such a confounding story. It just does not seem like the Jesus that we know and love, the, you know, the gentle hug me Jesus you know, kind of a thing. But there it is, for a purpose. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Every church that I've been a part of um, looked at this verse as, an, as a clear statement that churches should never sell anything at church. Don't sell t-shirts, don't sell books, don't sell coffee, <laughs> none of that, which is entirely missing the point. <laughs> Why is Jesus so flippin' mad, literally? He's flippin' mad here. He's flippin' tables left and right. I just came up with that. That's pretty good. <laughs> Why is he so upset? Well, he's upset because shalom is being, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a flow of shalom that's supposed to be happening, and there's a massive kink in the hose of shalom happening right here in the place where it's supposed to be flowing the most freely, the temple. And what's happening is you have people that are, that are coming here on pilgrimage, 
who are very poor. This might be the only time they get to go to Jerusalem. They are dirt poor, like 99.9% of the people in Israel at that time. And they finally get to the temple to make their sacrifice. They're looking for this holy moment, you know, the ho-ho kind of experience with God. And they come and they find out that their money's no good. That they have to trade for temple money. And it's not an even exchange. Somebody's making a buck off of them. It's these money changers who have been licensed by the people running the temple. So Jesus is watching that, and then they have to buy uh, their own doves from the vendor within or around the temple. They couldn't bring their own bird to sacrifice. No, 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 it has to be the one that's been prayed over or something. And so they have to change their money and then buy overpriced birds that they're going to use to satisfy God's wrath or whatever, and then they're going to be okay with God. And Jesus sees this, and he's like, man, that has nothing to do with shalom. Nothing to do with it. And so he gets furious. He's not furious at the poor people. He's furious at the people in charge who have given into corruption and greed. And they are exacting injustice on those who have no power. His fury is about the violation of shalom itself, of what God is wanting to do in the world. That shalom is a word we use here a lot. I have ruined that word shalom by saying words like shalomi. (laughs) <laughs> which I'm completely comfortable with. But let's get to a deeper understanding of shalom. Because I'm reading this book this week, and some things really hit me in the face, things I hadn't really thought of before about this word that I thought I knew so well. And I think it's going to mess with you, perhaps like it's messed with me. So this author, Mark Feldmeyer, writes, The Hebrew word shalom means peace, but peace is an inadequate translation. We think of peace as the absence of conflict, but shalom is far more than the absence of conflict because we can be conflict-free and still lack a sense of peace. We might still still be unsettled. We might still feel as if something is missing in our lives. Shalom means to make something whole. Shalom is an experience of fullness, completeness, contentment. Well, I already knew all that, and I think you did too. Perhaps the closest word to the word uh, shalom in the English language is something like well-being. But even that's inadequate because well-being doesn't come close to capturing the radical and counterintuitive nature of shalom. And the Hebraic way of thinking, this fullness, completeness, contentment, well-being called shalom is the result of the joining together of opposites or ostensibly opposing forces. So uh, in the Jewish tradition, Shalom is used for both hello and goodbye, kind of like aloha. Hello and goodbye, two things that seem to be completely different from each other. Shalom somehow describes both together. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, early in uh, the first half of his work, um, you get a picture of what it looks like when shalom comes to its fullness. So the picture here is what would happen if the Messiah came and brought back full shalom, 100%, what's it look like? And this is what Isaiah said, in that day... The wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safer near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. You see the opposites? coming together somehow, 
you have the, the terror, uh, the, the, the villain, and the one that's going to be victimized. You have the scary and the weak, the strong and the weak, all these things somehow working together. It's a metaphor, something to think about, but that's what Shalom is talking about, to even bringing these opposites together. Fieldmeyer goes on. He says, this vision of shalom means that all that is not aligned with God's love is brought back in place. Justice is served for one and all. Feldmeyer notes that the moral arc of the universe bends toward this ultimate purpose, but it does not bend on its own. God gives to each of us the task of bending it. Shalom begins with us, but before it begins with us, it must happen in us. That last line has been messing with me all week. It must happen in us. So I'm asking the question, what might it mean for shalom to happen in us? And how do we get wolves and lambs to recline together? And I think uh, we're going to... uh, we're going to go into Moses a little bit. There's a very interesting thing I'd never heard before I read uh, this particular author about a rabbinic understanding of uh, Moses himself. So Moses, you know, he was born in Egypt, uh, raised by a princess, and when he grew into adulthood, uh, he was told that he was not Egyptian, but he was actually Hebrew. And he saw his own uh, kin uh, being mistreated, and he tried to speak into it, uh, and it was pushed down, and eventually uh, he saw some things go down that he was not happy with, and his hands got soiled uh, with a murder. And as soon as he shed blood, trying to protect his own, uh, he ran. He ran about as far away as he could, and ends up in this place called Midian, which was many days travel away, and got married and tried to forget the past, tried to forget that it ever happened, and a long time passed. And then one day he's out uh, tending sheep, just taking care of sheep, and he sees that there's this bush that's burning. Now, a burning bush back then was not that big of a deal because it was really hot. And sometimes, uh, uh, what is the word, uh, spontaneous combustion would actually happen for bushes in that area. If it was that hot, maybe something reflected off a part of a rock and caused this thing to go. But what was weird about this particular bush is that it didn't burn up. It just stayed there in flames. So some ancient rabbis recognized that in the ancient Hebrew uh, that there's an interesting linguistic thing happening here, that the same words for fire and the bush uh, sound a lot like fire in the heart. And they're suggesting that maybe we need to think about this story in a much more metaphorical way. That really, Moses was coming to grips with the fire that was in his own heart, the fire in his belly for justice for his people. And what he was being invited into then, when go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, was right in line with his core, the reason for his being in the world as he understood it. It's a very different way to think about it. But for him to deal with this bush, for him to go back to Egypt required him to reconcile the past that he ran away from, the painful past where he did something that he wished he hadn't, where he violated the ethic of God and 
The only way he could figure out how to deal with it was to run away. Run away from his past. I wonder if any of us have been tempted to run away from our past. Toward shalom, we tell ourselves. Let's forget what was behind. Forgive and forget never happened. Let's just move forward as if the past was never there. And in a way, in dismissing our past and forgetting that it ever happened and just trying to go on with our lives, it is a way to kind of gloss over or idealize our past. Because in saying it never happened was, in a way, to put a lot of lipstick on it. It needs no more attention. Soren Kierkegaard had some words to say about this. He noted that a great source of our unhappiness in this life is our reluctance to let go of our less than ideal past and our unwillingness to hope for anything less than an ideal or, or perfect future for ourselves. Unhappy people, he suggested, are those who have their ideal, that is, the essence of their being, in some manner outside of themselves and thus remain absent from themselves in the present moment. To be truly happy and fully present to ourselves in the here and now, argued Kierkegaard, we must look not to the remembered or the anticipated ideal, but to a past that was real and a future that can be grounded in the real. Shalom, wholeness, well-being happens when we join our imperfect, less-than-ideal past with the more hopeful and real possibilities of the future and choose to live most fully in the real and present moment, deciding today who we will be, how we will live, whether we will pursue the aim or intention God has set before us. God gives us a choice in the matter of how our futures will unfold. The paint on the canvas of our lives is never quite dry. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like this at all. Let's just forget I ever said it and go home. <laughs> Pretend all that stuff about past and putting lipstick on pigs and all that stuff. Let's just forget about that because denial is so much easier. Am I right? Let's just not think about the past. It's past. And for many of us, it's painful. I don't want to deal with that stuff. So we tell ourselves. And my guess is that every one of us does not realize the truth of what William Faulkner said. <laughs> he said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Our pasts are with us all the time. <laughs> we never escape them. The worst thing we can do is deny them. However, I will say this that our brains are actually designed to absolutely deny our past at times, to protect ourselves. Uh, there, are, there are some things that have been so horrific that we've experienced, uh, as children in particular, uh, that our brains literally protect us by like blocking it out to say, never mind, this is too dark of a room to enter, so we're just going to pretend like it never happened. And we don't even remember sometimes horrific things that we've been through. 
You may remember I did a series on Martha Beck's uh, work uh, about a year ago. And this phenomenon happened to her where she experienced something in her youth and totally forgot about it. Could not recall it. She had no access to it until it started to deal with her with severe migraines. She couldn't get out of bed. And then one day, just something clicked and the door was opened and she remembered her past. And that set her on a very different course for the future. One where she could actually reconcile the pain of her past and try to allow God into that to try to heal things up, which was very difficult and excruciating and and professional help required, but in time, able to shalom this thing up so that no longer was this lion with teeth ready to devour, no longer a bear with claws that could wipe you out with a single swipe, no longer a leopard laying down with a lamb. The teeth were out, the claws were gone. And as she began to metabolize, integrate this thing with help and time, it became actually a fertile space instead of Death Valley. So I'm wondering, how are you doing with that shalom thing? This thing where these opposites come together, this great vision of God where where we're invited into this reality that is actually built on reality, not on the glossed over past, but on the actual past. How are you in that process? Oh, that reminds me, it's a process. I haven't shared all, this, all of my story, but I've shared enough so that some of you who've been here for a long time, you know, know that there have been things in my past that even though I grew up in a very loving household, I still have my stuff. And I still did my best to deny the past, to deny the humanity of my family system, even though (laughs) by most accounts, I got nothing to whine about. It just simply makes the point that even in the finest of families, it's still a family system made up of real human beings, which means it's a broken family system. So good news for you today. you can now leave this place saying, with great confidence, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Let's say that out loud together. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. It's much better just to start there, isn't it? (laughs) Rather than putting the heroic on our parents and not wanting to talk about things that really happened when they they were human beings acting out of their own humanity, acting out of their own dysfunctional families, all this stuff. But what I learned was that while there was great freedom when I started to do that and, and I made great strides through great effort to heal up some of that family system stuff in my own life, thinking, I nailed it, I'm done with it, it's gone, only to have a little bit of time pass and I have the same issues circle right back at me. Did it mean that I failed? No. It means this is the process. And throughout our lives, we will continue to work with those things that have wounded us deeply all of our lives. That's nothing to feel bad about. This actually means (laughs) that God can continue to meet us with the nuances of our understanding of our painful past 
and help continue to shalom up and shalom up and shalom up every step of the way so that it no longer has the teeth that it once did. It doesn't mean that I go back to the, the pain, the worst of the pain. It's not that anymore. The teeth have been removed. The claws are gone. And yet there are still things that have informed me from that past that I need to work on and understand. Otherwise, it still holds me back. But the more that I allow God to continue to shine light on that which was and still informs me, the more I allow God in on that, the more shalom and light I live with in my life. The more I am able to do the things that I think God wants me to do with my life. And to the extent that I refuse to do such things, and sometimes they're just too painful to, to, to touch, and I get that, but to the extent that we choose to not deal with our past, we limit our capacity for a shalom-filled future. Now, I want to give you a pass, and I, I mean this in all sincerity, not in any kind of, you know cop out or anything, but it is possible that maybe, maybe you have had an experience in your life that is so profoundly hard, so profoundly painful, that even with professional help, uh, it's just too, too hot to touch. And if that's where you are right now, and, I'm, I'm, and you're feeling some kind of pressure from me to like, hey, go after that, open the door, I'm not saying that. And it could be that some of you go to your grave. Uh, leaving that 5-10% behind. Never really reconciled because it was just too much. It's okay. It's all right. You know why it's all right? Because God works with what we give God to work with. And God can do incredible things with whatever we offer ourselves to God. That's how our open and relational theology works. So we're never alone. We always have this advocate, the Spirit of God, that in any given moment, as we're dealing with our past, as we're trying to figure out the steps forward, there's not like one door to open, there's like a hundred. And God is saying to us, hey, I just want you to experience shalom. I want you to flourish in your life. Which one of these ways seems most interesting to you? Let's just sort that out. And you pick one. And immediately God starts to work with us in God's spirit and says, hey, I've got a hundred more options for you uh, up next. Where do you want to go next? And again and again and again, all with this thrust of shalom, all based on the love of God, of God's desire to see us flourish and thrive. But sometimes we can't until we deal with the past. Moses couldn't deal with the future until he embraced his past. And some of you, um, by just simply remembering to spend time with God, God can become a great counselor for you. I have had that experience in my life where just by being quiet and still and a good journal and plenty of ink in the pen, amazing breakthroughs, insights, healing has happened. And I think it can happen for a lot of people on a lot of issues. But I'm also going to tell you that there have been some issues where I needed professional help. Uh, multiple times. Multiple sessions. And maybe you do too. And if that's you, it's all right. It's good. Isn't it wonderful that we have people who know how to deal with this stuff and can help walk us through? What a gift. What an amazing gift that there are people who think like this and can help us figure out next steps with the work of God behind us. So I don't know what kind of stuff you brought in with you today. I don't know where you're at with your life. Maybe all of your New Year's resolutions you've completely blown because we're 
into month three now, and one of your New Year's resolution may have been to get well. And maybe in the back of your mind, part of that wellness was to deal with whatever that was in the past. So maybe today is a new invitation for you and God to sort out, to hear the invitation again to well-being, not just a surface peace, but a kind of shalom that makes whole the awful and the beautiful and becomes a part of your story that continues to move you forward into ways you couldn't have imagined. I don't have a bumper sticker, three points here for you. Uh, this isn't the kind of stuff where I just say, do these three things and it's all going to be okay because this is relationship with yourself, with God, with others. It takes time and tension. You can't cheat your way around it. You can only go through it. And I hope that it's messed with you as much as it's messed with me. So I invite you to join with me in a brief guided meditation, and then we will end up living or end up saying the Lord's Prayer together in a moment. But if you'll sit in a way that you can be comfortable and breathe a little bit, let's just be still for a moment. So as you're breathing and getting still and hopefully still open, when Moses saw that burning bush, he approached it and heard the voice of God say, remove your shoes, for this is holy ground. My friends, you are on holy ground right now. as you come face to face with your own burning bush. Because there may be things inside of you that are white hot, burning within you. Maybe they're burning within you to say, help, 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 heal, heal, heal. Maybe it's a core identity thing that you're realizing that you have all but snuffed out because of things that have happened in your life and you didn't think they were possible anymore, but now, now we remember Moses. Now we remember that pasts can find healing and can strengthen us for the future. So what are you hearing from the voice of the Spirit of God today? What is moving in your consciousness? What's bubbling up? What is God inviting you toward? God, this is terrifying. terrifying. Help us, God. Remind us of your love for us because all we see is, are the teeth of a lion and the claws of a bear. Help us remember that you love us 
that your essence is love. You're for us. You're for our well-being. You're with us. You're with us. You are with us. Help us to inch our way forward and to healing deeply those areas that we didn't want to touch or remember. Help us take our next step of healing. If we've already done a lot of work, help us take the next inch forward that you might reveal yourself to be healing as you ever were, that we might continue to find a brighter and brighter path forward. May your shalom enter us. May we experience something we didn't think was possible. And may it cause us to love you and celebrate you and dedicate our lives to you even more. To that end, please join me in finishing our service together by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. If I can help you in any pastoral way or otherwise, I'm happy to do so. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.